I need to clarify what I mean by decorum because I don't think the the message is getting through based upon our call from Ruth. I'm not suggesting that we need to be, you know, polite little quiet children sitting attentively in the corner waiting our turn to be called upon before we speak. You want to talk about passion? I'd like to think that you have seen for, to the extent that you've listened to this program, passion from yours truly. I'm passionate about the ideas that I try to advocate for. I'm passionate about liberty. I'm passionate about personal individual rights and trying to pursue a government, a public policy that secures those rights and that provides the condition of liberty, which we are our due as human beings. It is our right. It is our birthright to have that, to have liberty, to have freedom, to have the dignity of being able to live our own lives according to our own judgment in pursuit of our own values in search of happiness as we define it. That is something worth getting passionate about. It's also worth something fighting for. It's worth fighting for. It's worth getting in people's faces to oppose them when they threaten it. And I don't have a problem with that. I'll get in people's faces rhetorically and debate them and condemn them and shout them down with facts, with reason, with truth, when appropriate. But what I'm suggesting when I, when I evoke the, the idea of decorum is that there might be some, I don't know, some boundary to the means that we employ in that. And first of all, just the very concept that there is a an end that we're pursuing, right? It's not just what is that what is it that we're trying to achieve in our engagement? What is it that Anthony Scaramucci is trying to achieve when he calls up a, a New Yorker reporter and starts swearing at him and threatening him? What's the end? It very much seems as though that the means is the end. Like the end is just the visceral release. And that's what I hear being advocated for is we need to, we need to get over uh, any expectation of decency so that we can finally release all this bent up frustration that we have of years and years of leftist assault, generational assault from the left on our values, on our culture, on the things that we care about. And I get it. We, we do need to fight back. Absolutely. But the way you fight back is with the truth. The way you fight back is with facts. The way you fight back is with reason. And you can be passionate about it. I'm not, don't, you don't have to divorce emotion from that. Emotion, emotion is our reaction, our physiological reaction to information filtered through our worldview. I don't have a problem with people being emotional. What I have a problem with is the things that cause them to be emotional in some cases, right? You know, when, when a leftist freaks out, the, the, the reaction to Trump's transgender announcement yesterday, there's a, there is a, you can get emotional about that, but whether or not your emotion is appropriate depends very much upon what is informing it. If you think as though the end is nigh, and there's some sort of unconstitutional regression taking place that's going to send us back to, to the 1950s. 
you might need to be reminded of the fact that this is the same policy that existed under Barack Obama for at least half of his administration, right? If, you, if your motion instead comes from the frustration that making the announcement in the way that he did and the way that Trump did doesn't actually help his overall agenda and caused a lot of undue frustration amongst military personnel, the Pentagon, his own administration, and, and through his allies for a loop, that's a legitimate frustration. That's legitimate emotion. So emotion is not the problem here. You can be emotional. What I'm suggesting is that maybe we ought to, we, maybe we ought to question why we're engaging in what's the where should the passion be coming from and what should the passion be directed toward rationally i think that's a fair question to ask don't you closing argument my name is walter hudson twin cities news talk am 1130 103.5 fm you can catch us streaming at twincitiesnewstalk.com and on your iheart radio app 9 to 11 weeknights appreciate you tuning in spreaker.com and your spreaker app two ways to catch up with our shows in podcast form, 651-989-5855, the number to join us, Brad Omlin, taking your calls. Now, there is, thankfully, some sign, some signal that, indeed, a standard remains amongst Republicans. A standard remains amongst conservatives. There is a point past which Trump can go too far from the Hill. GOP Senator Lindsey Graham is warning President Trump that any move to fire Attorney General Jeff Sessions will spark backlash from lawmakers. If Jeff Sessions is fired, there will be holy hell to pay, Graham told reporters on Thursday morning. Now, that's some harsh language right there. That's some passion right there. Graham added that Trump's public criticism of Sanders, or I'm sorry, of Sessions, is an effort to marginalize and humiliate the Attorney General. The president's actions aren't going over well with his former colleagues, according to the senior Republican senator. Graham also warmed Trump against firing special counselor Robert Mueller, who was investigating any potential connections between the Trump campaign and Russia. Graham warned it could be the beginning of the end of the Trump presidency. Trump has stepped up his public criticism of Sessions, a former GOP senator and his first public supporter in the Senate. He has also warned that Mueller has multiple conflicts of interest that threaten his investigation. Now, this particular story points out and highlights Lindsey Graham. Now, Lindsey Graham may not be your favorite person. He's certainly not mine. He's not my favorite Republican by any stretch of the imagination. But it's not just the likes of Graham that are having this reaction. Tucker Carlson was on his program last night, who, who is a marginally sycophantic defender of Donald Trump, right? Like, he's not, he's not as bought in as sold out as Sean Hannity is, but he's competing. He's in the race. And even he, last night, was all but saying, dude, what are you doing? Actually, I think he did say, this is crazy. It's crazy what Trump is doing in regards to Jeff Sessions right now. Jeff Sessions, who, as is pointed out in this article, was one of Trump's first and most fervent supporters throughout his campaign. And again, this goes back to the Scaramucci stuff of if you actually want to control your administration, yeah, you could threaten people. You could do that. You can take that tact. But how many friends are you going to be left with in the end? And of the ones who claim to be your friends when you utilize that methodology, uh, how many of them are, are actually going to 
value what it is that you're doing and the relationship that you have. If the thing that's motivating people is fear of being fired, fear of being called out, fear of being thrown under the bus, fear of being the subject of a presidential tweet tomorrow morning, if that's what's motivating people, are they going to be bringing their A game? Are they going to be providing the best they they can possibly bring to their job on a day-to-day basis? Are they going to be creative? Are they going to be experimental? Are they going to think outside of the box? Or are they going to be regimented and suppressed and, you know, stunted in their performance? I think the answer is pretty clear. And that's the White House that is being crafted right now. A place where people, even people, that's the thing is, it's not enough, apparently, quite clearly, it's not enough to get on board the Trump train. You get it's it's like it's pointing in the direction of North Korea style personality cult, where you have to be raw, raw, wide-eyed, anime, glassy-eyed, excited about Donald Trump 24-7 a day, 24-7 a week. Or you're out. Or you're going to be thrown under the bus. Even when you vote his way, you know, going, again, going back to the Congress, even when you do what he wants, pass this law in the House so that we can get moving on health care reform. Okay, we'll pass your law. What a horrible law. It's so mean. It wasn't generous enough. What were you guys thinking? What? You can't work with that. You can't work under these conditions. Again, the, the private sector argument. Who, how, who, of a, who among us would work for somebody like that? Who you come in every morning, and I've had these jobs, and I'm sure some of you have, have had these jobs too, where you come in every day and you have no idea what's the thing going to be today? What policy is going to have randomly changed without any rational cause? What arbitrary decision is going to be made from on high with no justification other than to to cover somebody's you know, personal sensibilities, stroke somebody's personal ego, has nothing whatsoever to do with why we're here, the mission of the organization. Those are horrible workplaces. And that's what Trump has created for himself in his White House, a horrible workplace. And through extension, the Congress, the Senate, the Republican Party, I don't know how, I don't know how any of, the, of my friends do it. The people who I know who are involved in various capacities, in partisan politics and elected office, I don't know how you guys are psychologically maintaining your your sense of balance. I, I imagine there may be a, a fair amount of uh, <laughs> alcohol involved in trying to maintain yourself. All right, so there was a concert last night, and we happen to have somebody in the room who actually was present. Yeah, that's why I was gone last night. So this got a little kind of out of hand, huh? A little crazy? Uh, not out of hand. I, I, I would say I enjoyed it. It was, it, it's like. We've, it was we've controversial. This, we've, yeah, we, I mean, we've had this discussion before about the expression of art and like if it's offending somebody, like it's probably working mm. because there was that Pioneer Press reporter who wrote the article that uh, we have specifically tweeted out like did you see anybody leave because of the anti-trump rhetoric and uh, apparently people did but it's interesting because the people the people who were pink floyd fans in the 70s are trump voters today 
So <laughs> it's it's kind of interesting that uh, um, how the tables have turned. I mean, Roger Waters is 75. He's Trump's age or even a little older. Um, so it's interesting to see the artistic expression take the turn that it has. And But the uh, – is it the – animals album that uh that he was you know using a lot of this as inspiration for the for what he showed um i think it at least shows the artistic like longevity to it the fact that he wrote it in a post-vietnam but pre-nixon era who i think that they would uh people would associate trump the most with before this um but when I judge, I've been to a lot of concerts, and when I judge, uh, would I, you know, w- how good of a concert was that? Where does that rank for me? I think, would I go again, and would I pay more to see it again? And I think both of those, I would say yes to. And it, it's just testament to the artistic creativity and brilliance that is Roger Waters and was Pink Floyd. I don't gather from this article exactly what he did that was the anti-Trump messaging. <laughs> well, if you, I'll tweet out the article too, but you can look at my Twitter account, Brad Radio. I took a video of some of what he was showing, and the images that he was showing and the words that he was using on the screen, uh, he had Trump, uh, Trump's face photoshopped onto a baby who was like crawling after a cat. Um, he had Trump photoshopped into one of those little like toy red car like the red cars with the yellow roof yeah 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 yeah. Um, i was wondering one of those when i was a kid mm -hmm. he had trump photoshopped onto a little statue of a baby uh and it implicated the size of his genitals oh nice. um he had when he played the song money he had a montage of like of so this wasn't like a one-off this was no throughout the i mean the what is it? Pigs, three of them hit that song. Uh-huh. That's like eleven minutes long. So he had time plus more to expound to expound on this montage. And keep in mind, for those who haven't seen pictures from the concert, this was of if you know the cover of the Animals uh, album, the power station that's on that album. This was on screens. Uh, hanging over the audience, like lengthwise across the floor, like yeah. perpendicular to the stage, like in right. the nosebleeds where I was sitting, I had a good view. Sure. It's like going to the movie theater and sitting like in the best seat in the center and back. Right. Like that's the view I had of the screen. And so you couldn't miss it. Right. <laughs> there was no looking away yeah. from this imagery. And it was, it was, it was a good show. It was awesome. I, I would go again. I'd love to go again tomorrow. Well, there you go. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. It's been a while since I've listened to this album. It is good. There's no doubt. This is what you were listening to last night, right? Yeah, in this song, they superimposed uh, Putin and Trump doing rich people things together. Um, there's a video in the Pioneer Press article uh, from a guy named Solace on Twitter who uh, tweeted out, a, he recorded the video and tweeted it out, and I recorded a portion which was earlier in the uh, 
in the concert that was, I think, better than the this money montage. But uh, yeah, there was a lot of implication of uh, Trump is just a rich guy and uh, he's connected to Russia and he's a clown. Like the words across the screen were clown, and then he uh, made the he had quotes like saying like. You know, it doesn't matter what the press says as long as you've got a young, hot piece of ass. It doesn't, like, um, and then other stuff like, if Ivanka was my daughter, or wasn't my daughter, perhaps I'd be right. dating her, stuff yeah, like that. Right. Yeah, you know, it's, I don't, I don't blame anybody who got up and walked out because they found it distasteful or disheartening or offensive or whatever the case may be to have politics so directly intermingled in their entertainment. That said, you know, I've generally are always kind of had the philosophy that my, my transactions with people are take place in a very specific context. You know what I'm saying? Like I don't agree with Matt Damon's politics, but I'll go see Jason Bourne. Sure. You know, I don't agree with uh, most things that come out of Hollywood in terms of their political opinions and their social opinions and their cultural opinions. But, you know, I'm not paying them for that, right? Like, that's not that's not what the transaction's about. It, the way I look at it, it's similar to, you know, if you hire somebody, if you go looking for, and this is kind of feeds into the, the transgender thing from yesterday, which uh, I haven't had a chance to get your take on, Brad. But in, in my ongoing analysis of what the the real value is there that we're circling around. If I hire a plumber, I'm not giving him a life survey, you know, before he comes in my house of, you know, what are your theological beliefs? Where did you grow up? What school did you go to? You know, what, what do you think about game of Thrones? You know, all this irrelevant stuff to the task for which he is employed, come and fix the pipe, right? Come and clear the clog, whatever the case may be. In a similar sense, when we when we talk about something like transgenders in the military, uh, the the focus ought to be on what is the role that they're called upon to engage in, and to what extent does their status as a transgender have any influence upon that role? And in a similar sense, with something like this uh, this concert that you that you went to, you know, it. Are you paying for and, and that's pro, that's the justification for walking out is I didn't pay to see all this anti-Trump stuff, right? But if it was just that you know he happens to be anti-Trump, but it wasn't part of the concert itself, you know, you still go in my view because sure. that that's not what you're that's not what the transaction's based on. Well, we if you compare it to like we can relate it kind of back to the Kathy Griffin incident. Um, it's about context, like. Kathy Griffin's stunt had no context, whereas this was like a buildup. It was part of the story he was trying to right, tell right, right, right. with his art. And he even like looped it back together when he had that uh, orb that's on a, an album cover. Uh, it like it was in the background on the screen that was behind him, and yeah. uh, it was flying through the different scenes. Yeah. And then the orb comes out in the audience at the end. It's yeah. like, whoa, now, now the scenes are here. Like, it was... It was it was a build up to it, and it was you could like you could see the expression in the context. It wasn't just uh, it wasn't just like an artist getting up there on the stage and going "F Donald Trump." It, yeah, it wasn't the Oscar speech. Now I'm going to mm-hmm. give five minutes of my political opinions mm-hmm. that are totally out of context. Yeah, that that's the thing is that I you know I'll listen to somebody like uh, well I'll I'll listen to John Oliver on HBO. I'll listen to Bill Maher on HBO. 
Uh, I listen to liberal podcasts, right? I'll, I'll, I love Louis C.K. I think he's the the best living comedian and and has is in the the pantheon of comedians of all time. But I don't agree with virtually any of his political views. I mean, on politics, he's completely inept. He has no idea what he's talking about. But even when they they weave their politics into their the entertainment product, you can you can still derive value from it even when you disagree. You know, the, the, this idea that you have to be in agreement with the people that you transact with, I, I think, is goes a long way towards uh, shallowing the the uh, topical gene pool, so to speak, shallow, shallowing the discourse to where we don't we don't challenge ourselves to engage with things that rub us the wrong way and to actually try to try to deal with them and incorporate them into our worldview or to answer them in an uh, in an effective way i think that that's uh, a lost art that needs to uh, resurge closing argument my name is walter hudson twin cities news talk am 1130 1035 fm 651-989-5855 twin cities news speaking of our transactions that we have with each other and uh, how those are based upon very specific contexts. You know, you're not, you're not wondering where the guy who you're buying your hot dog from at a food truck in the middle of downtown Minneapolis, you're not wondering, you know, about his, where he went to high school or what, what his hometown is or, you know, what he's doing later tonight. You know, you're just interested in the hot dog. That's, that is the total, uh, total content of your interest in that individual with that transaction. And that's okay. That's appropriate. We don't have to care about each other in a comprehensive sense in, in terms of every single person that we come into contact with. And indeed, if we did, we would be stunting ourselves and handicapping ourselves and never be able to move on with our lives. And uh, th- there's a story here that kind of makes this point in a different way. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com, and your iHeartRadio app, two ways to stream us. Podcasts are up at Spreaker.com. You can also download the Spreaker app to catch up with past shows, 651-989-5855. Brad Omlin taking your calls from the Star Tribune. A well-known group of Minneapolis restaurants starting Friday will add 3% to every customer's bill in an effort to offset the rising expense of providing health insurance to its employees. Kim Bartman, whose restaurants include uh, Barbette, the Red Stag, and the eclectic Bryant Lake Bowl, said Thursday that she is making the surcharge known to her customers rather than raising prices here and there on various menu items. Just as people are wanting transparency on where their seafood or beef or vegetables come from, Bartman said, We're hoping that transparency around this issue in our restaurants is appreciated and encourages people to patronize our locations. Bartman said she has spoken with many of her employees at the six restaurants, and I haven't gotten any negative feedback. I often get thanked for offering health insurance. A lot of restaurants don't offer insurance. Along with uh, Barbette, Red Stag, and Bright Lake Bowl, Bartman is applying the surcharge at Pat's Tab, Tiny Diner, and The Bird. Health insurance has been going up 20 to 30% a year for the last few years, Bartman said, and we can't continue to sustain those increases. She doubts customers will skip an appetizer or skimp on the tip 
or stay away entirely over a 3% bump on the bill. We think our customers will appreciate knowing that our workers have good quality, affordable health insurance, Bartman said. Now, a couple of points on this. One is that the transactional point that I was making earlier. Are there some customers who might get some sense of emotional satisfaction in knowing that part of their bill is going directly to providing health care for the person who brought their food to them? I have no doubt that there are people out there who fit into that category, who derive some sense of personal satisfaction in having uh, apparently benevolently provided. This is the thing that I don't understand about this. When you go to buy food, when you go to a restaurant and you go to pay your bill, like, I, I don't know about you, but for me, I'm paying for the food. Like, that's it. That's what I'm paying for. I'm paying for the food that I want because I want to eat it, and, and I and I like the ambiance, and I want to go to this place, and I'm paying for the access to it and for the food to eat. That's what I'm paying for. What the waiter and the owner and everybody else involved in in the operation, what they do with the money that they get paid doesn't matter to me at all. I don't care. I don't want to know. I don't it doesn't matter to me at all whether or not you have health insurance or where you're getting it from or to what extent my purchase has contributed to your pursuit of values that's your issue and it's not like it's not an issue uh, it's i'm not, i'm not it's not a malevolence it's a it's an almost i str- i struggle for the a precise way to put it but it's it's like an ambivalent benevolence where i i'm not so Let's put, I'm not so self-conceited, self-involved, that I believe your well-being depends upon my recognition of your needs. You know, and this, that's kind of the, this hipster culture that, that oh, it's, it's local. Oh, it was, this is, this is coming from, this is helping small children in, in impoverished areas, you know, by tacking on whatever percentage to my purchase at checkout when I buy something online. Like, this idea that, the world depends upon you making these little micro transactions. And if, and if you don't step up to the plate, that everything's going to fall apart. That's a very ego stroking phenomenon that uh, is being appealed to here. Now, that's one side of this coin. The other side is to question the sincerity of this particular restaurateur. Is she really trying to offer her customers an opportunity to feel good about contributing to health insurance, or is this a thinly veiled protest against the encroachment upon businesses that uh, seems to be perpetuating itself at the Minneapolis city council? I would guess the latter. I would also guess the latter specifically because we have seen this thing happen before. I I don't remember exactly which restaurant it was or who the owner was, but I want to say it was a restaurant in Stillwater or thereabouts that was was objecting, and I forget exactly what it was that they were objecting to, but it was some sort of new government requirement or mandate that was imposing a direct cost upon them. Uh, it may have been an increase in the minimum wage. My memory doesn't doesn't serve me. But they did this same thing. They put it on the bill for their customers to see. This is how much more you're paying for your food today as a direct result of the legislature passing this law or the governor signing this executive order or whatever it was that the that 
whatever mechanism had resulted in this increase. And in that case, it was a much more explicit form of protest where the the restaurant owner was very out front about the intention to make this an issue uh, with his customers. Yeah, I found it here. It's uh, It was in Stillwater, the Oasis Cafe yep, in 2014. It. Uh, tacked on a 35-cent fee to meal tabs to offset the 75-cent wage increase that took effect on August 1st, 2014. There you go. And And he got backlash for it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, but but I I think that it's appropriate to... It it was an appropriate form of protest because he's highlighting, look, this I'm not going to eat it. Like, that's that's what's truly... hypocritical about this expectation you want to you want people to feel good about doing something in order to improve other people's lives but the fact of the matter is you're not doing it you're not doing it like if you really wanted to pay for somebody else's health care write them a check nobody's stopping you you're not doing anything because you you marched in a parade or you you protested at, at the capitol or you know you can't you pulled the lever for a candidate who said they were going to use the force of law to compel business people to sacrifice to cut into their profit, which is the only reason they have a business. There's another story here. Let me see if I can find it here, where I, I can't find it off the top of my head, but the gist of it was there are in Minnesota a number of clinics that are called safety net clinics, and uh, the the idea is these are government funded federally funded uh, organizations that provide care to people who presumably cannot otherwise afford it. Uh, Here's the article here from the Star Tribune. Um, While the U.S. Congress continues to debate the future of Obamacare and Medicaid, Minnesota safety net clinics worry that they will lose $27 million in federal aid that helps pay for health care for the uninsured. Unless Congress acts by October to renew the funding, Minnesota's 17 safety net providers would have to cut services and possibly close some of their more than 70 clinics across the state. Why? Why? Why would they have to cut services? Why would they have to close? If we're so benevolent that we're going to provide people with things that they need because they need it, why don't these doctors work for free? Why doesn't their support staff work for free? See, the the hypocrisy here is that nobody is actually advocating on the left. Nobody is actually advocating for you doing something personally to benefit another person's life. What they're advocating for is stealing from somebody else, a third party. They're asking for your vote to empower them to steal from a third party in order to in turn provide for somebody in need. And then to, to top it off, the icing on the cake is, don't you feel good now? Don't you feel like you did something by empowering us to mug someone else and spend their money on a good cause? Ugh. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, 651-989-5855 to join us in our final segment this evening. Let's go to Carl in Burnsville. Welcome to the program. Uh, Hi, thank you uh, for taking my call. I just kind of wanted to chime in on the whole uh, Kim Bartman surcharge issue. Yep. 
Uh, I uh, am somebody who have who has worked for uh, Kim's company uh, on and off for a number of years, and uh, interestingly enough, I am probably uh, in the vast minority of uh, people in that company who uh, politically leans very, very right. Mm-hmm. And uh, the way I look at this is simply that um, this is a concept that a private business um, is using to counter uh, what is uh, government overreach right. and point out to their patrons that there's a reason that these costs are increasing, right? And consequently, this is something that we need to do. And and it is, you know, regardless of your political leanings, the fact of the matter is, providing health insurance to employees uh, is admirable, and it is very very rare in the restaurant business for companies to provide uh, or offer health insurance to mm-hmm. unsalaried employees. Right. And uh, I, I do think there's a level of transparency uh, that you don't often see. Um, and and I, I do think that that's kind of being glossed over in all of these arguments. Well, I mean, the the value, I mean, let's go back to why it is that employers started offering health insurance and other benefits in the first place. It was because, ironically, of government intervention. It was because of price controls, because the government was telling people that they couldn't pay people the market rate for their labor. And so in order to compensate for not being able to pay people what they're worth, companies started to offer health insurance and other benefits in order to make up the difference. And, you know, that is the value. When you talk about it being admirable to uh, provide health insurance for employees, it's admirable in the sense that it's an employer provide exchanging value for value. And she's not giving it away. She's providing it as compensation for the value that the employees bring to the business. Well, there there is absolutely some truth to that, but she is offering that additional comp- compensation, if that's what you want to call it, uh, mm-hmm. when it is not uh, required to do so. I believe the ACA requires uh, insurance offerings after 30 hours. Right. Um, everything you see and read about Bartman's company indicates that she offers it after 25. Mm-hmm. So she's, you know, we're, we're, we're talking here about a reduction of uh, about 15% in hours uh, required to work that you're offered insurance. And uh, additionally, it isn't simply about offering coverage, but Bartman's company uh, offers or rather pays 50% of the premiums for those employees mm-hmm. at a lower hourly requirement uh, than is required. And uh, again, I uh, am one of the few people who have, who have been a part of this company over the years who, again, lean very, very right politically. Mm-hmm. And to me, uh, this is, I look at this as, this is the way health care ought to be handled rather than being mandated by government. Um, you have a, a, an upstanding, admirable employer who is offering coverage because it is the right thing to do, dis, uh, 
rather than because they're required to do it. It's something this company's been doing since 1993, mm-hmm. uh, which, of course, far predates the ACA. So I don't, as a conservative, I actually think this is fantastic, uh, rather than, um, you know, covering rear end or PR move. Um, it's, again, a business approaching a problem um, with a solution that clearly lays out the objective. It's, it's not a, mm-hmm. it's, it is, in my opinion, a very transparent move. Well, you're certainly, you're certainly in a position to have more insight into what's motivating it than uh, I am or that we are. I appreciate your call, Carl, and your insights into uh, that development in Minneapolis. You know, I, I just think it's important that we clarify what we mean by it being, quote, the right thing. What makes it the right thing properly is that it is a value that attracts value in trade from potential and current employees in order to, in turn, provide a better service to customers and then keep the business thriving. Uh, That's why it's the right thing. We we need to be careful as conservatives that we don't cede the premise that there's some sort of duty for employers to provide anything at all to anyone on any terms. There, There is no such duty. And to the extent that one is articulated, the word for that is slavery. You know, the idea that, well, because somebody needs it, you ought to provide it. That is the fundamental notion of slavery. Um, the, what makes it the right thing is the extent to which it actually pursues and provides a value in trade uh, in a given transaction. Real quick, I wanted to hit on this news from the Star Tribune. The Mall of America on Thursday shut down a popular ride similar to one that flew apart at the Ohio State Fair on Wednesday, killing one person and injuring seven. The Shredder's Mutant Masher was taken out of service as a precautionary move. Mall of America representatives said in a statement, crews will perform additional inspections on the ride, which will be idle until the mall gets approval from the manufacturer Chance Rides, Inc. This is a ride that I have been on. This is a ride that my children have been on. And, you know, there's this kind of cycle of life that you go through when it comes to amusement parks and amusement park rides where as a kid you're scared of them then as a teenager you get over your fear and you believe you're completely invulnerable then as an adult you come around and you start to realize there is a chance however insignificant that something horrible could go wrong and I could die on this thing and then something like this incident uh, in Ohio takes place and it just uh, lends more credence to those fears so I'm not sure if I'm going to be getting on the mutant masher again but uh, you know Let's put it this way. I'm not sure if I'm going to have my kids get on it again, but, you know, nonetheless, just one of those oddities. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you tuning in. Glenn Beck is next.